You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 29. Today we're asking the question, does manual handling training work? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name is Drew Ray and I'm here with Dave Proven, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. If this this is not your first time listening, then thanks for coming back. The podcast is produced every week, released on a Monday, and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and examine the evidence surrounding it. So David, what's today's question? So Drew, today's question is, does manual handling training work? And we thought we've done some roundabout sort of uh, episodes over the last five or six and dealt with some really big topics like the effectiveness of teams and theories of graceful extensibility. So we thought this week we'd come back and do something that was a bit more transactional in the sense of a direct workplace intervention and the impact that it had on improving the capacity of people to perform a task or to you know, reduce them getting hurt. So let's let's start with a bit of background. So training, training itself is, I think, a cornerstone of company safety programs. We do a lot of safety-related training in the workplace, and we have done that for decades. We've done some previous episodes on training, Drew, uh, episode 18 on PowerPoint slides, um, episode 19 on virtual reality training, And by way of an update, Drew, I'm now the proud owner of a VR headset. I cashed in some of my frequent flyer points when it looked like all of the airlines were going to go broke and bought myself a VR headset. So I've now got some practical experience to go alongside the theory of virtual reality. So so is this an opportunity to carefully test out safety training or an opportunity to play Counter-Strike with full visuals? Uh, it's an opportunity to uh, keep trying to better my time on the street luge at the moment. Um, but look, it's, um, it's, uh, it does take video gaming to a whole new level, I must admit. Um, and the kids love it. I've actually had VR suggested to me as a possible way of coping with lockdown. Uh, the idea is to put the noise cancelling headphones on and the VR headset on and just disappear into a space which is not the study. I did. I did see someone on LinkedIn comment that they were sending their school children off on uh, virtual excursions to Antarctica and making them write kind of reports of what they'd seen. So I was looking at all the different experiences that you can download for your VR headset, and uh, if the isolation goes on for too much longer, I might be. I might be doing that. So, so, so today we're not so much talking about virtual training, but very physical training. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the different types of manual handling training that are available? Yeah, so let's um let's talk about training more broadly before we do that. So so I think we can broadly, in relation to safety, talk about two different types of training, vocational training and safety training. So vocational training is is training in how to perform the task that your work or job require. And then safety training is is specifically about how to identify and manage the safety risks that might or might not be associated with your task or your work environment. And so when we talk about this safety training, there's also two types of safety training. And we'll talk about this throughout the paper that we reviewed today, being educational and technique. So when we think about manual handling training, you can have educational manual handling training where you sit people in a room and tell them about uh, manual handling. Or you can have technique-based manual handling training, which is like the, the typical 
original intervention where you get a group of people in a room and let everyone practice lifting a box by bending their knees. So educational and technique-based training. So David, educational training would be like when I was first working for a department store where they sit you down in a training room and here is a video of someone lifting a box and here is how to place your knees and here is how to keep your back straight and and then the, the other type is where you're actually lifting the box and have someone correct you when you do it incorrectly. Yeah, and I must admit, I haven't been involved in these types of interventions for a long time, but uh, early on in my career, that's exactly the sort of training programs that I was coordinating in the workplace that that I was in. So Drew, when we talk about training and training interventions, do you want to give us a bit of an idea about how we should think about studying and researching training and um, training interventions for safety? Sure. So, so I'm actually grabbing stuff that's directly out of the paper that we're going to study today. They give some quite good guidelines on what makes a good training intervention study. The, the first big one is just having some sort of control group. You need to know the difference between are you just measuring people's capability or are you measuring a difference you've made through the training? The second big one is having some sort of follow-up. What people can do immediately after the training isn't particularly relevant. That's not why we train people. We don't train them for the hour after they've been trained. We train them for ongoing workplace practices. So to evaluate training, you've really got to come back and see what are people doing in six months' time and ideally what sort of injuries have people experienced over that time. If you get those two key things in and then you report everything else clearly, you've got the basics of a good evaluation. Thanks, Drew. So so that's, that's how we might think about training and um, whether it's manual handling or not. And now when we think about manual handling and, and the background to that, Drew, I mean, manual handling is a big problem in the workplace. And often we might be talking more about major accident events and fatality risks than other occupational injuries like muscle strains uh, caused by manual handling or slips, trips and falls. However, I just want to kind of point out that not for a minute do we think that or do I think that we shouldn't be researching, investing in trying to solve these problems. You know, particularly some of these incidents that are a result of manual handling uh, incidents yeah, they're permanently disabling for people. I think it's like the number one cause of um, of of workers' compensation claims over the last 20 years in, in almost all countries with a compensation system. So I think anyone or any of our listeners with a bad back or a bad shoulder or a bad knee would absolutely agree that it's, you know, sometimes we can dismiss these types of injuries for favour of major accident events, but, uh, you know, we, it's really an and proposition, not an or proposition when it comes to health and safety. Yeah, there's an unfair stereotype that links uh, pain-type injuries almost with malingering. Um, you have people who are sort of permanently on workers' compensation. But the reality is that these are injuries that do leave people for six months, a year, possibly never returning back to their original job. And often these are the good workers. These are the people who are working really hard at the workplace that we want to keep. We want them to keep them making a contribution. They want to be at work. Um, but the pain can be just you know, the pain alone. Forget about the your physical disability is disabling. So Drew, I'm sure that we've like I mentioned earlier, I'm sure we've all been involved in manual handling training at some point in our careers, either participating it. Um, I personally have arranged several of these types of sessions. Um, I'm not sure what these programs look like today. Uh, I haven't been involved in in recent years, but they've been an absolute staple of our safety programs for decades. Manual handling training in the workplace. So. Let's see what the research says about these interventions. Do you want to introduce the paper for today, Drew? Okay, so the, the paper is titled 
What constitutes effective manual handling training? A systematic review. Uh, the paper was published in 2010 in the Journal of Occupational Medicine. Uh, so this is a good journal that's focused on the medical side of safety as opposed to you know, safety management and major accident prevention. And the research was funded by the UK Health and Safety Executive. The authors are Stacey Clems, Cheryl Haslam and Roger Haslam. They're all from the Work and Health Research Centre at Loughborough University in the UK. Um, so no red flags in the background of the paper. Good group, reasonable funders, reasonable place to publish it. Um, and the paper is a systematic review. It looks at 53 intervention studies published between 1980 and 2009. So Drew, the um, systematic review, they, they search multiple databases. So just for people understanding, I think we've spoken about a number of systematic reviews on, on the podcast, but they just they, they selected their databases and they had a whole string of search words like manual handling, training, lifting, effectiveness, reduction in injuries, uh, etc. And they pulled out a total of 1,827 papers. So they then narrowed that down to 221. And to do that, they just, you know, you, you first get the search results, then you have a quick look at the abstract, and then you have a criteria by which you are trying to select your studies. So here they they wanted the primary aim of the paper to be about the effectiveness of manual handling training, and they wanted an intervention study. Uh, so that narrowed it down to 221. And then once they went into all of those papers, they ended up with 53 papers that met their criteria. So on first pass, 53 uh, intervention research papers over 30 years on a very specific topic like manual handling training intervention seems like a good body of literature, Drew. Yeah, it, it's it's certainly not a topic that has been ignored. And as listeners may know from other times we've looked at systematic reviews, coming up with something that has been reviewed that many times is good. Um, and even better is the fact that these are not all rubbish studies. Some of them are really uh, quite good, both in terms of their method and in terms of their size. One of the things we haven't talked about on the podcast yet, Drew, is... Um, when you end up with these 53 papers, not all papers, not all studies are created equal. They're not all of the same quality. And what I liked in this study, and we haven't spoken about it yet on the podcast, was that they applied a, a quality checklist to each of the studies. And the quality checklist was a, was a standard research quality checklist, I suppose, if, if you like, had 27 items, added a few extra ones. But what they did is they just applied this checklist to each of the papers. And for example, they would check questions like the sample size, the representativeness of the sample, whether confounding variables were identified, whether there was a control group, whether there was a follow-up period of the study, and, and all of these items to try to categorise each of the 53 studies into quality categories. So, Drew, I, hadn't, I don't see this too often in, in safety literature reviews, but for me it was really important. If you start making claims in your literature review based on one or two papers, you want to make sure that they're one or two good papers that you're making that claim about. Yes, and, and the idea of having some sort of formalised weighting system is it gets around the accusation of researcher bias. It's not their opinion, or at least not their unfiltered or unstructured opinion that one paper is better than another. They can point back to the scoring criteria and say, look, 
several researchers all applied these same criteria. We all got to the same score. And so it's official that this paper is better than that paper, at least as far as the quality of evidence it provides. There's a few different ways you can set up these scoring systems. This particular one really weighs up two things. How well did you evaluate the manual handling training? And how clearly did you write up the paper afterwards to describe precisely what it was that you did, both in terms of the training and in terms of how you evaluated it? So it gives points for all sorts of things that you'd expect to make it a better paper. There's points for did they use a control group? There's points for how many participants they used. Um, there's points for whether they did follow-up measurements. There's points for clearly describing how people were selected for the study. One thing I like about these sorts of questions is that they're a bit less rigid than some of the ways that often get used to weight papers that tend to be overly dogmatic about particular ways of designing your study. So one thing that happens in a lot of reviews, for example, is they say that anything that's got a pre and post measure scores higher than anything that's only got a post measure. And that ignores the fact that there might be really good reasons why you've only measured people afterwards instead of beforehand. Um, and you're in the case of manual handling training, obviously, you know, checking out how good someone is at lifting before they do the training is going to really distort your results because even that measurement is like a form of training. But the downside of this sort of point system is that even a bad study can still collect a reasonable number of points just by ticking enough of the boxes, even if they're not the most important ones. So some pretty weak studies in this still got reasonable scores. But I think it's really good at separating out the really good papers and the really bad papers. In the middle, the scores don't really mean a lot. Yeah, so Drew, I think we'll we spend a bit of time on this, but I think it's um it's a good part of the research method that's worth that's worth us understanding, our listeners understanding. So this scoring system they they put into percentage, and so the papers, these 53 intervention papers got scored between 31% and 84%. So that's a big discrepancy in terms of the quality of research. And this was all limited to peer-review academic published uh, papers. And so with this in mind, um, papers that scored between 0 and 49%, they were described as poor. And they, like you mentioned, some of those criteria, Drew, they typically had a small sample size, no control group, and no follow-up. So then papers between 50 and 59% were described as medium quality. And then 60 to 69% uh, were described as good quality. And then there were some papers that scored over 70% that the authors described as high quality. And Drew, these papers typically contain large samples, randomization of participants into either an intervention or a control group, a sufficient duration of intervention period, and a follow-up assessment, which makes it a fairly rigorous rigorous study. Yeah, I'd pretty much say that anything that didn't get above 70% had something wrong with it that it was seriously flawed and really should be discounted as evidence. But I think we're lucky, though, because after we've gone through those 53 papers, we're still left with enough papers that we can draw conclusions which is a pleasant surprise given some of the systematic reviews that we've looked at. In the notes here, Drew, you've got six with an exclamation mark. So six out of 53 studies, in your words, not seriously flawed. Look, if you are doing manual handling, training, intervention research, you know, having a decent sample, randomizing your participants, having a sufficient period of intervention and a follow-up assessment are sort of the fundamental building blocks of your research. So six out of 53 is probably not a great result there for the academic community. Yeah, and if you think we're being overly harsh here, we're talking here about studies that had two participants 
are included in that 40 to 49 percent bracket so then so Drew, let's go in because there's some there's some interesting findings here and and i mean like we do have a fairly well about as relatively as straightforward a topic as we get in safety so like I said, each of these 53 papers had the primary aim of investigating the effectiveness of manual handling training. And so they they categorized the papers into subgroups of findings. So the first subgroup was specifically research that was dealing with manual handling in the healthcare sector. And it was particularly uh, research uh, with nurses who are exposed to high levels of patient handling. And we know that that um, occupation, the nursing occupation and, and patient handling is you know, got a long history of manual handling risks and challenges. And it was this, it was scary, Drew, when you read some of the background to this, that the rate, the prevalence of back pain in the nursing population is like 50% every year. So one in two nurses suffer sort of an injury and back pain every year. And the lifetime prevalence is up to like 80%. So huge opportunity to make that work safer for, for the nurses. And so the studies that were that were reviewed in this review basically concluded that there is very little evidence that ed educational based training improves safe patient handling. Now that was both whether you train the nurses during nursing school before they ever went to work as a nurse or whether you gave the training to qualified staff who are already in the workplace. Basically no evidence um, that that training is having an impact on reducing the risk of manual handling injury. So David, I want to throw in a little bit of nuance here because this is the group that had the largest number of high quality studies. So of the ones that dealt specifically with patient handling, there were five high quality studies and three of those did report positive results. They said that the training was effective. But when we look closer at what was effective, it's not giving people education. Uh, so one of the studies included both a calisthenics program and an education component, and they didn't sort of separate those out. They said that the combination of the two was effective. Another one of them was about comparing an exercise program to a training component, and then the positive result was that the exercise program was better than training. And the third one, it involved 35 hours worth of on-site visits by an ergonomist, and that ergonomist was doing all sorts of things. They were helping with selecting equipment. They were providing some training. They were providing some redesign of the workplace. So that was effective. But again, it's really not clear which part of all those many things that they were doing caused the effectiveness. So there were two good studies that just like directly tested training. Um, and you're not just two hours tra of training. You're, one of them was an hour a week over two years. And those ones found that there was no benefit to the training. Yeah, Drew, look, I appreciate you going and digging out those those references um, and you've done that for each of the findings and, you know, that's a big study. You know, that's a big study to design and that's a big commitment from an organisation to do an hour a week of manual handling training for two years and and not to receive benefits. So so that, I suppose, starts to maybe answer our question for the week, but let's let's keep going through. The next subgroup included studies in non-healthcare personnel. So these are these are the studies where we're not in the healthcare sector, where the goal of the study was actually to improve manual handling training. These were generally low quality. This is many of the uh, low quality or poor quality studies fit into this group where there was no control group, there was no follow-up, there wasn't necessarily pre-post. And even, and even in this group of papers, there was little evidence for the effectiveness of training. And there was a further finding in this subgroup, Drew, that the principles taught during training are not carried over into the work environment. 
So not only maybe do, so, you know, maybe I'm interested in your views on this because maybe it's, is it that the training is ineffective or is it that the training doesn't result in changes to the way people work, which doesn't make it effective? So uh, I've done a little bit of reading around this and it seems to be almost at every point. So manual handling training doesn't tend to change the way people actually lift things. And there's quite a few studies that say that even if the training did actually cause people to change the way they lifted, that sort of traditional training of you keep your back straight, lift from the knees, doesn't actually result in lifting techniques that reduce your chance of injury. Yeah, Drew, I mean, I must admit it's been um, done a little bit of gym throughout my life. And I know that going back, well, over 10 years, there was always that in the gym, it was always told to keep your head up and lift with a straight back. And I know that that's changed over the last decade where it's actually, no, 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 you're far better off lifting and moving with the, what they call like the natural curvature of your spine and not hyperextending you know, your, your back or your neck or, and things like that when you're lifting heavy equipment. So, you know, there's maybe some something to say that some of that training was actually uh, counter to the way that we now understand maybe that people can exert safe and maximal force. Also, a lot of the things that people are trying to lift are not nice, neat parcels sitting flat on the floor between their knees that facilitate following exactly what the diagram in the video says. Yeah. So that was, that was kind of interesting that, that, again, we've got a group of studies in non-healthcare that's concluding that training doesn't change the way people work and it doesn't change their, their risk of manual handling injury. So the next subgroup involves study that, studies that investigated the effectiveness of physical training to improve the capabilities for manual handling. So this was based on an earlier research finding that proposed that, well, in, in this piece of research, it said that most manual handling injuries result from a mismatch between a worker's strength and their job requirements. So there were 14 studies in this group. All but one drew were relatively short interventions of equal to or less than six weeks, which is basically you get a group of people, you give them calisthenics or flexibility or strength or gym training for four to six weeks and assess their capacity to perform the manual handling exercises they need to on their job. Uh, there was one high quality longer study and the research concluded a beneficial effect of exercise training for improving people's physical capacity to perform the manual handling tasks in their work. But there was a pretty strong limitation on this research in the paper, Drew, that it it hasn't been thoroughly tested in the workplace setting. You know, a lot of these research papers were using un university students and things like that, people who are going to put their hand up and volunteer for six weeks of going to the gym um, for a research study. And so we and we also don't know how long the effects last uh, following the discontinuation of training. So we kind of don't know, we don't have many studies that have tried this in the workplace over longer durations. So, so we, we don't have that direct evidence uh, but remember that the reason why they were separating this out is that some of the other long-term studies did seem to show that you, if there was benefit, the benefit was coming from that exercise and conditioning portion. So, for example, there was the high-quality study that mixed education with calisthenics. So, Drew, we've got uh, 53 manual handling training intervention studies. Six of those are good, high-quality uh, research papers. We've got three groups of findings. We've got the healthcare sector, which has said, don't really bother training your nurses to reduce their risk of manual handling injury. We've got the study in the non-healthcare setting, which concludes the same. 
and and extends that to say that people aren't going to take what you give them in educational training and change the way they work. And then you've got this third group of papers which say, well, actually, there might be some benefit from improving the strength, flexibility, capacity of people to be able to perform the manual handling tasks they have to perform. So the first two sentences of the conclusion in the paper states, Drew, and I might quote it, they said, this systematic review found that manual handling training is largely ineffective in reducing back pain and back injury. And furthermore, there's considerable evidence supporting the idea that the principles learnt during training are not applied in the working environment. So Drew, both technique and educational-based manual handling training, telling someone what you think they should do in a classroom or even showing them how to lift or move something in a classroom is unlikely to have any effect on their work performance or their injuries. So I feel like we need to have one, an audio version of that Mythbusters busted logo coming slamming onto the screen here. But, but I do want to caution that pretty much all of these studies confirmed the fact that this is a real genuine problem that organizations are trying to solve by introducing the training. And that the type of training that's covered in these studies ranges a lot. And it certainly doesn't seem to be the case that it's just Oh, okay, so two hours of training doesn't work, put in place a bigger program. Even the bigger programs didn't have increased effectiveness. Uh, what makes the difference is either moving in the strength and conditioning direction or moving in the combining the training with actual workplace redesign and selection of equipment to assist and reduce the amount of manual handling. Yeah, Drew, I think that's a great segue into our practical takeaways because like you said it is a problem for organizations and they 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 should invest and they do invest in trying to do something about it so the paper does make some suggestions uh the, the paper suggests taking the money well basically by my um my summary of what the paper suggests is take the money you're spending on your manual handling training and basically invest it in equipment and job redesign and i mean we have this paper is 10 years old drew and you know if you do go into a hospital these days although with uh COVID-19, I, I sure hope that our listeners don't have to go, don't have to visit a hospital. But you will see over the last 10 years, a lot of investment that's gone into patient lifting aids, the design of beds, the design of wards to really try to minimise and assist uh, patient handling in, in the healthcare setting. So I think we've probably seen, since this paper was published 10 years ago, Drew, I think we've probably seen organisations yeah, adapt the way that they're thinking about managing the risks of manual handling. And if you haven't, then now's, now's a good opportunity to refocus yourself a little bit further up the hierarchy of controls. Yeah, I, I think there's some really good practices that involve ergonomists coming to site and spending time walking around with people, looking at the types of tasks they do, looking at where things get lifted and basically going through that, you know, can we remove the need for this task? Can we reposition the stuff that needs to get frequently lifted? Can we, where we have to, label things clearly as requiring multiple people to lift or requiring special care in lifting? And so that sort of combination of raising awareness about lifting at the same time as you do practical things to reduce the need for lifting and to make lifting easier does seem to be the way that this is moving. And so, Drew, if you do have your, your, your residual risk left over when you've, when you've taken those opportunities to redesign the work process and and uh, redesign or or provide uh, lifting aids and equipment. Person task fit is directly relevant around this residual risk. And for those uh, in your workforce who are inclined to uh, to inclined towards strength based exercise training, 
then rather than sending your people off on training, you know, subsidize their gym membership and you'll probably get a better risk outcome when it comes to manual handling. I think you'll certainly get a more positive response from your staff to your safety spending. Yeah. So, Drew, do you want to, how about an invitation to our listeners? So you've got some ideas here of things that you'd be interested in from, from our listeners. Okay, so we had a fairly straightforward question this week, and we've got fairly straightforward listeners to our list, listeners coming out of it. So do you at your workplace have any sort of manual handling training? And what does it look like? Have you, both David and I, I think we've shown through this episode, our own knowledge of exactly what organisations are doing is not fully up to date. And this research is surveying a very sort of old school approach. So what are you doing now for manual handling? How much does it match that old educate people how to lift or you know, what sort of innovations does it have? Do you have any exercise or fitness program at your work? I mean, lots of organizations have got sort of general fitness, but do you have anything like specifically targeted at fitness for work, at building people's capability to do the work that you're giving them? And where you're doing training of any sort, how do you evaluate it? How do you measure it? How do you know it's working? So Drew, the question for this week was, uh, Do manual handling does manual handling training work? Do you want to have a go at the answer? Nope, it doesn't. <laughs> there you go. So that's it for this week. Uh, we really hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Please leave us a review. It really helps people find the podcast and send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 